Nearly $8 million were spent last night on the special election in Ohio, which will be relitigated in just three months. However, that may be the least interesting feat of last night. Magalites, Sanchezistas, and establishment folk alike had horses in the races spanning from the so-called Blue Wall to Missouri. We'll go through all of this, InfoWars deplatforming, New York Times editorial board controversies, and more. I'm Tiana Lowe. And I'm Avery Hogarth. This is the political pregame. Sit down and have a drink with us. After a week of whiplash that is or isn't free speech, you'll need it. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, we will be talking about the special election results that just happened last night, I guess, slash this morning as well, as they're still being counted because... And many primaries. Some races have just been way too close to call, and should they have been close to begin with, that part's up for debate. And then we will be talking about free speech as uh, with what's happened with InfoWars this week and the deplatforming of that, um, it's created a lot of controversy here in the media. So, Tina, how about you take it away? So, everyone was focused on the Ohio special congressional election in the 12th district. And to be clear, this race should not have been close. This is a district that Trump won in the double digits. And the fact that it's coming down to Democrats enraged by the Green Party vote, it's going to be down to a few thousand votes, max, uh, that separate the Republican and the Democratic candidate. And Trump says that this is a victory. He calls it a red wave. Realistically, uh, the GOP has John Kasich to thank for maintaining the seat, which, as I already said, will be relitigated in just three months. So we're sort of seeing the stakes of these multi-million dollar congressional elections in places like Georgia and Ohio that should be fairly red, uh, they will. this is going to become a normal thing, I think, in terms of having these John Ossoff-style candidates who are promising to ignite the blue wave. And quite frankly, I think that the way it... Um, the way that it played out in Ohio is a lot more realistic a path for Democrats going forward rather than... Uh, hitching their horses to the Ocasio-Cortez wagon. Definitely. And I mean, we've seen that with the results of the primary elections that occurred just yesterday. I mean, you saw Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders go on this entire tour across the country where they were hosting rallies for numerous um, progressive candidates in historically red states in a lot of cases. Some were blue states and blue districts, but a lot of the, the cases, it was in these elections that have been identified as toss-ups. Yet, basically, none of their candidates, except for a woman from Detroit, who will be actually the first uh, Muslim woman elected to Congress, because now that she's made it through the primary, she is running uncontested. Um, they only had one success story in a now uncontested race for yeah. the general. And, you know, they, they came and they rallied in Kansas for Brent Welder in Kansas District 3. And Brent Welder lost to Sharice uh, Davids in the primary, who hopped in the race at the filing deadline. Um, Emily's List definitely pushed her forward, but, I mean, the Politico... Uh, headline today was down goes socialism. So that's got to be a huge blow to the Ocasio-Cortezes and the Bernie Sanders and the likes of the super fringe far left in the Democratic Party. Um, We discussed this a little last week on the podcast, but in a way, 
I'm kind of happy about this because this then takes the rhetoric away from these progressives becoming the face of the Democratic Party, which I think is going to make it harder for Democrats to get elected in these 2018 November midterms. So hopefully with the loss of a few of these candidates and with kind of the wind coming out of the sails of Bernie Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, we're going to see Democrats being able to push their agendas in the main platform and the establishment policies, which I think is the winning strategy, not these fringe left movements. Yeah, and especially the fact that the only cases in which the Democrats actually have been able to flip these deep red districts, they've been running people like Doug Jones, who, I mean, if you compare the rhetoric of Doug Jones to a Cynthia Nixon or someone from this Bernie Crat wing of the Democratic Party, it's almost unrecognizable. You know, when you have someone like Doug Jones who speaks fairly sympathetically towards people who are pro-life, who who acknowledges um, the importance of religion in many Americans' lives, it's so different than Ocasio-Cortez's bender yesterday on Pod Save America in which she basically said the plight of the Furby-toting, minivan-driving soccer mom is no longer a concern of the Democratic Party. So I just think, I mean, the fact that Danny O'Connor even came so close to winning uh, Ohio's 12th district just goes to show that Democrats can flip these deep red districts, especially if they're running against crackpots, like if Joe Arpaio or if Kelly Ward uh, win the primary for, for the Arizona Senate seat instead of Martha McSally, who... I think most sane constitutional conservatives are backing. Um, If they're running against Arpaio's or Kelly Ward's or um, Roy Moore's, yes, they can win, but it takes them understanding that you have to win the country, not just 16,000 people in Queens, like Ocasio-Cortez did. Exactly. And I mean, so if we're talking about a blue wave or if we're talking about a red wave, I think it really has to be an appeal to stability, an appeal to reason, an appeal to morality over an appeal to flashy idealism on either side. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think obviously Trump's tweet did not characterize what is taking place in the country and what is taking place in the Ohio special election um, well in that it kind of cited this as being a red wave because as Tiana mentioned, and I think is a point worth stressing, is although, you know, Democrats may not win this seat, this specific seat in this special election, this should not have even been a contested race to begin with. And it'll be interesting to see moving into November. Obviously, I think the races are going to be tightened, the margins are going to be narrowed, but if Democrats can actually pull out on top, because I think we're seeing these margins narrow, but whether that actually means anything in the long run in terms of the eventual output of the election and when voters go to the polls, that's to be determined. Yeah, and this is not to say that, I mean, on the Republican side, I know it sounds like I'm bashing Trump quite a bit here, but this is not to say that Trump doesn't have a very, very valid place in primaries. I think we see in the Michigan Senate primary, something amazing happened. So there was Sandy Pensler, who was who was the original frontrunner, um, or at least acted like a frontrunner, you know, typical um, white Ivy League Republican, fine record. I don't think it was going to incite a lot of excitement to beat uh, Debbie Stabenow, but then John James entered the race, and he is a West Point graduate, um, a small business owner, a job creator, 
um, and also, if elected to the Michigan Senate seat, would be the fourth black senator uh, and the second uh, black Republican senator. And not, and again, this is not about race. It's not about in voting in someone because of their race. But the fact is that he didn't have a lot of ties. He had no ties to the establishment in the Republican Party, was running against someone who similarly wasn't a swamp monster. But John James speaks with the sort of rhetoric of ideas and of foundational values that conservatism should be based on, was able to incite a lot of excitement in the base. And then eventually Trump came out with a public endorsement for John James, pushing him over the edge. The, the, the polling shows pretty clearly that Trump that Trump's endorsement was the final thrust for John James to ultimately win the Republican primary in the Senate last night. And that's a great thing. So Trump still has a lot of say when it comes to helping out underdogs, when it comes to uh, choosing people over, over what would be typical GOP establishment. And that's a good thing. I think that Trump should be using that carefully. However, when he goes to these rallies in places like Ohio's 12th, where it's where these are jungle primaries, not right, or where this is a where this is an election that acts like a jungle primary. You have a Republican and a Democrat, a Democrat trying to beat each other rather than just two Republicans. Um, when he does these rallies, incites a lot of local anger in Democrats, mobilizes them to vote, and then you have protesters wearing shirts saying that they'd rather be Russian than Democrat or touting insane conspiracy theories like QAnon, which we aren't even going to go into except for the fact that it's batshit, for lack of a better term. I think that that does potentially more harm than good when it comes to uh, GOP's odds in these seats that Democrats are sinking millions of dollars into. Absolutely. I mean, well, there's a reason why the enthusiasm factor plays a role in determining toss-up districts and which ones are likely to lean Republican or likely to lean Democrat. And that's because the enthusiasm factor in terms of getting voters out to the polls, which has been notoriously poor, especially in congressional elections or for Senate seats rather than federal elections, um, every, every vote matters. And so whether someone's a Trump supporter or not, if the on the Democratic side, their base is more fired up to get out there and actually get to the polls and make the effort, then that's going to pay off tenfold. And I mean, speaking of endorsements, this is kind of more of a side note, but I found it interesting to see um, Hillary Clinton get a little political where she's been kind of keeping out of the spotlight. And actually, I guess, ha- still have some political relevance or political power in um, Michigan 11 for their congressional primary that was held yesterday. She did a late-in-the-game uh, robocall on behalf of Haley Stevens, who was polling at second place just prior to the day of the election, and that actually put her over the top and made her win the primary over the Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders-backed yeah. candidate, which I found quite interesting, and interesting to see that Hillary Clinton got in the mix there. Yeah, and I mean, now that we bring up the Clintons, I... I, I it's funny, the Democrats need a Bill Clinton minus, you know, all the rapiness. So I think it, that's a Joe Biden. I mean, it, 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 I think it could be, except for the fact that Biden's a thousand years old. I mean, not older than Bernie Sanders, but, you know. I, so I bring up Bill Clinton specifically because Bill Clinton is someone who was able to change the Democratic narrative. He reached out where other Democrats pushed away. 
Bill Clinton, I mean, and this is true in all of the uh, postmortems that have been written about the Clinton 2016 campaign, was increasingly ignored in Hillary's own campaign in favor of sort of the intersectional far left wing in order to compete with Bernie Sanders. Whereas there is clearly, I mean, this is sort of what this podcast is all about, the fact that there is a portion of Americans in the middle who might identify as liberals, who might identify as conservatives, and feel so utterly abandoned by the socialists on the left and the insane pro-Russia rhetoric on the right. And if, a de- if the Democrats were able to run someone like a. Joe Biden... I mean, again, I, I think there are a lot of logistical issues with running Joe Biden simply because of his age, but if they were able to run someone like that who didn't make every rural white male in this country feel alienated from the party's base, I think they could win. Yeah, and I agree with you, but I think the predicament comes with kind of what you just mentioned, in that in order to get through the primary for a lot of Democratic candidates, we we did not only see this at the presidential level with the 2016 elections and those primaries with Hillary versus Bernie, but we have seen that in congressional elections across this country, in that in the Democratic primary, in order to get the votes necessary to make it through, you need to appeal to those left-wing voters who are backing those progressive candidates. But then what happens if those progressive candidates get through the primary and then have to face a Republican? The fact of the matter is, the Democratic Party is going to be worse off because they are not a generally appealing candidate. If Brent Welder made it through the primary in Kansas, he would not stand a chance against Kevin Yoder in what's identified as a toss-up district and where his seat's in jeopardy. But with a more moderate Democrat like Sharice Davids or like some of the other candidates that were running, now they have a chance. But we were lucky in that instance in Democrats because you see candidates getting through that are too far left for what can appeal to the general public in the general election, and that's what's kind of flawed for the Democrats in the primary system that exists now. It's going to be very hard for Joe Biden to go against, you know, Ocasio-Cortez-like figure. I don't even know if Bernie Sanders will be around, but someone like that, because you have to make... Exactly. And and you have to make the statements early on to appeal to the left, but then how do you renege them once you make it through and get to the general? It it sets a very tough resume and precedent. It's weird, because I feel like the similar thing is happening on the right, where there has to be enough kiss the ring, bend the knee to Trump, so that way he doesn't batter you, but not so much that you're accused of being a Russian stooge or a sellout or anti-free trade. And this is um, and this is why I'm, I'm looking so intently at the Arizona race, because I think that there you have another pretty blood-red seat that should go straight to Martha McSally, but if Republicans blow this, if they run Arpaio, if they run Kelly Ward, it's not going to end well. Yeah. And I think that another seat that is worth mentioning, just because we've had a little bit of interaction with it, uh, the Missouri Senate seat, uh, Claire McCaskill's that she is defending. Claire McCaskill should not be a one-term senator, let alone a two-term senator. And my God, she cannot win for a third term. The only reason why Claire McCaskill lost in 2012 was because she was running against a crackpot named Ted Aiken, who said that, he said on national television that... In cases of legitimate rape, a woman's body has a way of shutting the whole thing down with regards to not getting pregnant. And I think he was trying to make a case against abortion. So that's why Claire McCaskill won that election. It was, it was, Ted Eakin threw it. Now, last night, it was the Missouri uh, Senate primary. And naturally, obviously, McCaskill won her seat. 
And Josh Hawley, uh, the attorney general of Missouri, won theirs. Our friend, I guess we love to call him our friend, Austin Peterson, who we have done an event with, uh, came in fourth, I think. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Um, even though his social media ground game was quite good, but it just goes to show that when you have too many people in a primary, it just it just dilutes the field. Exactly. He, he got eight point three percent compared to Holly's. Uh, hey, that's still like four times 6. more the votes than the Ocasio Cortez got, right? He got like fifty <laughs> k. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so just I guess I'll say to Holly's, do not mess this up. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens there. I mean, I'm so. I still think McCaskill's going to get it. I you mean, still think so? I mean, we can call it here now and All then right. go. Well, I'm going to bet. I'll, I'll can go, we, can we bet right now? Can we Can we make a wager? What's the bet? Well, I'm going back to Canada uh, next week, so maybe I'll bring you back a, uh, a bottle of nice Canadian we whiskey. No, we won't. We won't and no, I'll, I'll have to keep it on the shelf. Whether I'll drink it for myself or I'll give it to you. Okay, we'll see. Fine. All right. You know what? That's fair. Okay. So, uh, on that note, let's quit it with the horse races because realistically... There's nothing we can do about them. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about free speech. Specifically, there have been three big stories in the last week that I think all strangely intersect. One, Alex Jones being slowly deplatformed from most major social media channels and Infowars. Two, Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk being mobbed by and sort of assaulted by Antifa members uh, during breakfast over the weekend. And three, uh, backlash to Sarah Zhang, the new addition to the New York Times editorial board's old tweets that many on the right, and I would also say the center, are saying are pretty uh, racist and questionable. And whether or not an Asian woman can be racist against white men. So, uh, where should we start? Well, what I have found interesting just considering Facebook as really being deemed a leader in this space in terms of free speech and whether to take people off of their platform or not, as with Zuckerberg's hearings in front of numerous politicians, is that Facebook wasn't the first one to ban Infowars. Apple was. And then Facebook follows in suit. Like, honestly, apparently midnight to, like, less than, you know, Within five hours of Apple issuing that they were going to do this, Facebook's like, oh crap, now I look like the bad guy. I need to do this. So it's like, I just completely have lost any trust or faith in Facebook to, and their leadership to not only like do the right thing, but even just being able to execute and follow a game plan. Like they're, they just, just they, they almost made themselves look worse by oh, banning Infowars right after Apple did because their entire thing, their entire, I guess, argument the entire time was that we aren't going to ban someone just because what they say might not be true. It, it still has to go against our community guidelines and principles. So an Infowars doesn't go against those community guidelines and principles. Okay, fair. If you're going to stick to that story, then you better double down on it. But when Apple bans them and then Facebook just flips the switch and goes and follows suit along with all of these other social media platforms, then really, like, what were your arguments to begin with, I guess, is my question. It's just it's just classic, in my opinion, of the day and age that yeah. we're living in. I am so sick of... De- okay, I feel like defending Facebook is like defending Trump. I do it, and my defense is logically correct, 
And then the next day they go out and stab me in the back. And I'm like, what, what's the point? What's the point of putting your neck out for this company? Anyway, so with regards to Facebook, I'm actually going to turn to Jack Dorsey with, I think, someone who has the correct response with how to handle this question. And this sort of falls in line with, with the with, I think, what David French and Ben Shapiro have largely been arguing uh, vocally, which is that for specific violations of, of a social media outlet uh, terms of service, for specific violations, I think that people should be allowed to be banned. Facebook is a private company. Twitter is a private company. I think that if you are specifically inciting harassment or making threats, I think these companies have every right to ban you. I don't think promulgating crazy conspiracy theories is enough grounds to ban someone. I mean, for two reasons. One is the intellectual argument of just, I think that sunlight is the best disinfectant. The fact is shutting down Alex Jones just means someone else will crop up. And then if you still shut down every one of those people, it radicalizes people, I believe, feeling like, feeling like they cannot express their opinions. And that's when we'll get into the Candace and Charlie discussion in a second. So there's the there's the sunlight is the best disinfectant argument. Second, I think don't this is what David French said in the at the New York Times, don't reinvent the wheel. Libel and slander laws work really well. Why not just use 200 years of historic precedent on your uh, for your social media platform rather than being forced into this weird conundrum? Where, for instance, so the city of West Hollywood officially voted on. Um, making a formal motion to request that Hollywood removes Donald Trump's star from the Walk of Fame. I have no problem with this. It's, I think that it's your city. You're allowed to vote whatever you want, except for the fact that the Hollywood Walk of Fame is not controlled by the city of West Hollywood. It is controlled by the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, so different thing. But then the second you break historical precedent and you start remo removing people, then it becomes a subtle endorsement of the people who you leave behind. So if Twitter had decided just to flat out ban Alex Jones without citing a specific moment in which he incited harassment of another user, was doxing someone, was violently threatening someone, then it would raise the question, why is Louis Farrakhan still on the site? And that was, to me, I think the scary thing about Milo Yiannopoulos being banned, not that I agreed with the majority of what Milo said, but rather that then you open up this can of worms where, okay, well then why don't you remove this guy's star, why don't you remove this user from Twitter? And with Facebook, it's like there is just, it's hard to fault Facebook solely because if Facebook wasn't invented, someone else would have invented Facebook. And I think that Facebook hasn't yet made the straight nosedive into evil that Google has with its compliance with the Chinese government to create a censorous uh, search engine. And I'm willing to give Facebook the benefit of the doubt of their trying, but they need to just decide are they a publisher or are they just a platform? If they're just a platform, if they're just a host for other people's content, no censorship unless if slander, libel, direct threats, illegal speech. If they are a publisher, that is fine, but they need to own up to that. Well, that's what it seemed like they were going for in you know the past year where they've been under fire for this. However, at the last minute, they just flip the switch and follow suit with another industry leader. And so that's where I'm like, okay, I have no confidence in this company anymore. I think in regards to slander and defamation laws and, and those that exist and are entrenched in legal precedent, yes, they're strong, but none necessarily exists for social media. And so no one has successfully been brought to trial on a case like this, to my knowledge at least, 
um, in this new day and age of this kind of fake news stuff that's circulating on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, um, on podcasts, on Apple or Spotify or whatever it may be. So it's it's tough because if you don't remove them, I don't necessarily have faith that the judicial judicial system, sorry, can remove them as well because that precedent doesn't exist, and that would be very hard to get that precedent to actually exist in my opinion given even the fact of like what trump says on twitter he's not been taken to trial for that and he's probably one of the most out there people on the platform constantly berating people i just think it's a tough case to make in the courts yeah, from well, the legal realm but i just think how much do we even want to censor any of this speech if people are thinking vile things they must be litigated in the court of public opinion i think that we need people to to break down and denigrate and decimate the seeds of of this sort of racism that we've seen come up through the alt-right, of the sexism that we've seen come up through the alt-right, of, I think, dangerous communism that's coming from the left and from Antifa. I don't think just silencing these people is the way to do it, because I mean, because then you, it still exists in people's minds, and I think that they will find ways for it to be promulgated. And it just, it, it's... It's antithetical to the basis of liberalism to want to shut down non-protected speech. And by non-protected speech, I mean that, that of the First Amendment. I think the problem is, though, that I at least I don't have the faith in humanity that people will actually just not follow these accounts and shut them down and call them out and turn against something because InfoWars itself has, what, like 3 million YouTube subscribers before it was taken down? And so... Clearly, there are people that believe these things. And yes, some of these comments and some of this rhetoric being pushed might be vile, but it, it has a supportive base, just like it does, not to relate I, I, it, I, I, just I, I, like I, a lot of radical ideas do. What do you think shutting it down actually solves? I think shutting it down, I'm not even advocating necessarily to shut it down, but I think what it does solve is the promulgation of these sort of ideas that radicalize the public, that spew hatred, that turn places into, like, what happened in Charlottesville. I'm just saying the, Charlottesville wasn't decided upon on YouTube or on Twitter. But it, there it is these online communities. There are, but these on, but YouTube is the least terrifying one. It's a lot... It, it, I mean, if you go even something like like the Donald subreddit is really a safe, like, I would say whitewashed version of what hardcore MAGA like, communities can look like. Reddit does a pretty decent job, I think, of maintaining free speech while shutting down stuff that's that's actually illegal or bordering on illegal. I still think forums, other websites will continue to exist. Like the fact that the Daily Stormer still exists. I know that that, that web servers were continually um, issuing denial of service attacks on it, but it still will happen even if it's even if it's not on Twitter or if it's not on Facebook, and. With that being said, I, the reason why I want to bring up this, this incident with Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk is not because I'm going to defend what specifically what Candace says, but Charlie Kirk literally fundraised off of the attack on, I believe it was on Sunday. I don't think Antifa and people on the left realize every time they attack someone like this, they are turning them into martyrs. Alex Jones is eating this up right now. I, if I were a betting woman, I would say Alex Jones is secretly thrilled about this because this is the most press he could possibly get. 
there is no way that Turning Point USA did not just make a bunch of money off of a bunch of wussy little Antifa bullies pouring drinks on them. And quite frankly, like, this should go without saying, do not touch or assault people unless if they hit you first under any circumstances, no matter what they say. I am not a Candace Owens fan, and this it was disgusting. It was deplorable. No one should be, I mean, we can debate the merits of, of mobbing people out nonviolently out of breakfast spots, but to but to throw a drink on someone, it's creepy and it's weird. But I think that the left is shooting itself in the and I say the left because you see less cases of the right trying to shut people down this way, this sort of like Antifa style mobbing. They are doing themselves no favors, letting themselves embrace the mantle of victimhood. I think they people who do this from the left, I, I think it does happen on both sides, but if we're gonna speak to this particular incident, I think people who do this from the left are playing right into the cards of yeah. those that they're actually doing it to. Because this just adds more fuel to the fire to the basis of these organizations, of these people. And so by doing this, they're able to go show those videos because everything's filmed now, everything goes viral on Twitter. They're able to show those videos to the basis saying, look, yeah. look how crazy these left-wing communists are and just gain more followers from it. And the same yeah. thing goes um, with groups on the right too, doing this to people on the left as well. And so I, think it's just I just think it's, it's never a good look. I think beat someone in the polls, beat someone yes. in debate, beat someone through intellect, but you don't need to do that stuff. It just never looks good. It's like we're just engaging in this national catharsis where people don't actually care about winning or losing anymore, but they just want to feel good about themselves. Yeah. And throwing a drink on Candace Owens make them feel good about themselves, even though all it's going to do is shoot her into superstardom on the right. And it's childlike. I mean, that's that's honestly what a kindergartner would do. So it is. It's, it's pathetic. It's ridiculous. And no one and deserves it, to be treated like that in public. I mean, no one deserves to be treated like that in private. No one deserves to be treated like and, that. And it, and it does a disservice to the good merits that lay behind movements on both sides. I'm not saying radical groups on the left are good or radical groups on yeah. the right are good, but it does a dis- disservice to the intellectual arguments that exist for either side. So, I don't know. I honestly wish instead of in the Facebook comments section or YouTube comments section, it was all of these people just, you know, spewing these hateful things and rather people having an educated debate. But frankly, that's probably too much to ask of society. So... As a final thing I just want to bring up is the addition of Sarah Jean to the New York Times editorial board. So on its face, I don't really, not I don't care about this because I read the New York Times editorial board every day, but so the controversy that was, you know, obviously the topic du jour for Twitter uh, was the fact that in her old tweets, she said a lot of things specifically talking about, I enjoy or I derive such sick pleasure out of being mean to old white men. Just a lot of stuff that was anti-white. And I think it remains to be debated whether or not she actually feels a sort of racial animus in the same way white, some white people will feel racist towards black people. Um, but that being said, I think that for most people, they should read this and be sort of disgusted by it. However... There were a lot of people on the left saying, not only should we defend this speech on because we care about free speech right now, because it's Thursday, but also we should be celebrating it because racism is just power plus prejudice. 
I hate this argument, and I think I tweeted about this earlier this week. I just woke up and just thought, wow, are we really going to imply that alt-right trolls living in their parents' basements have any power? No. I think that racism can come from anyone. And just the fact that, that certain portions of the left, and again, not liberal, certain portions of the left, are willing to take on and off the mantle of free speech when it so suits them, and just shows how denigrated the conversation of liberalism on certain portions of the left has become. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm, I am going to say that it happens on both sides, but I agree with you. I think you can't, you can't advocate for something and try to protect it when you agree with it. It has to be universal, and that goes along with everything. I think that's a bigger takeaway to, to apply to everything in the political sphere right now. So... On that note, I mean, I'm sure we are going to see more of this happen, unfortunately. Uh, there's even a more, there's another round of primaries taking place next week. And so we'll see what happens there. Maybe it will be the red wave, like Trump's saying. Maybe it'll be the blue wave. Yeah. Wait, I just thought about something. We should totally vlog the midterms. In November? Yeah. Yeah, we could. How do we, where would we even go? I don't know. We need to figure something out. Maybe this is this is the true political post game. We create a drinking game for all of you. You join us. Yeah, that's vlog. the vlog is the post game. Yeah, right? you know what? Yeah, the vlog is the post game. Yeah, okay, I yeah. Well, what on that note, we both have work to do. All right, thank you guys so much. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Tiana the First at t- at uh, Avery Hogarth and um, catch us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website thepoliticalpregame.com. Thank you. Thank you.